I'm Trevor Elio, and this is Conceptually Speaking, a show that's all about engaging experts in dialogue about the concepts and patterns that help us understand our world. Each week, I chat with guests from a variety of fields to better understand how their cognitive processes and social practices help them navigate complexity and solve wicked problems in their domain. Whether chatting with academics or YouTubers or educational leaders or neuroscientists, every episode is an invitation to explore meaningful questions and reconceptualize what we think and feel about education. As melodramatic as this might sound, I don't think I'll ever forget the first time I encountered the New London Group's A Pedagogy of Multiliteracies article. After an evening of mindless scrolling in the summer of 2016, I clicked on a fortuitous Facebook post from a fellow English teacher. As I read, I became increasingly enraptured. It felt inspiring. It felt fresh. It felt innovative. I assumed it had to have been cutting-edge research. Then I saw the publication date. 1996. Oof. Reading that date made it abundantly clear educational practice was falling farther and farther behind educational scholarship. It's a disconnect I notice more and more as I move through my own dissertation process now. It's also a lament shared by my esteemed guest this week. On this episode, I was lucky to be joined by Dr. Troy Hicks, a professor of English education at Central Michigan University and the director of the Chippewa River Writing Project, as well as his co-author, Dr. Kristen Holly Turner, professor of education at Drew University and director of the Drew Writing Project. Our discussion is coming hot on the heels of their recent publication in English Journal, Digital Literacy Still Can't Wait. Four questions to reframe the conversation around technology in the English classroom. A follow-up to their 2013 publication, No Longer a Luxury, Digital Literacy Can't Wait. Though I'm sure they wish such clarion calls weren't still necessary, I'm thankful for scholars like them who continue to fight the good fight to bring powerful ideas to practitioners and pose poignant questions about how we use technology in our classrooms. What if that's not the question? What if the question is, what kind of knowledge are we going to produce today? then what happens, right? Like what happens to your classroom? What happens to your um, choice of tools, your choice of texts and how those things go together? Um, In terms of equipping teachers, like that's a huge hurdle to overcome that my students are gonna be the knowledge producers, not me. So whether you're a techno skeptic or an ed tech enthusiast, Kristen and Troy's four questions are an invitation for us to use technology in more transformative ways. Enjoy. So, Troy and Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Trevor. Great to be here. So the crux of our discussion today is going to center around um, your recently published article, Digital Literacy Still Can't Wait. So for folks who have not had a chance to read it, and you should when you get the time, how would you summarize some of the ideas that you're bringing forth in your article? And what are the four questions that you kind of lay out? Because I think that'll give us a lot of really rich Uh, conversational meat to chew through this evening. Well, I certainly appreciate your emphasis on the word still, because that's what uh, really brought us to write the article. Kristen and I have been collaborating for a number of years, and just about 10 years ago, we had an article come out in English Journal, Digital Literacy Can't Wait. And when we met again, gosh, probably about about this time last year, we started talking about this. We saw the call for proposals in English Journal and said, what could we write uh, to think about the current moment coming out of the height of the pandemic and moving into the endemic era where probably some students are still going to be back and forth and online or some are going to be totally online. And what can we uh, say or do at this moment? 
which also connected to the fact that um, either through fate or happenstance or whatever, NCTE had released their statement on a revised definition of digital literacies in the fall of 2019. And if we can remember the world back then, uh, we all thought it was just going to be another pretty typical school year. So as Chris and I were writing the article, we were looking at that statement from NCTE, reflecting on our work from 10 years ago. And we thought, how can we make this a little bit more clear and concise for teachers? And that's where we developed those four questions. And I know we're going to talk a lot about them tonight, so I'll just kind of say them out loud here and then we can dive in a little more later. But we boiled all these um, ideas around digital literacy down to number one, how do I foster communication between my students? Number two, how do I allow for accountable collaboration? Number three, how will my students use digital tools to create, consume, critique, and think? And then the fourth question was, how will my students revisit, revise, and reflect on their thinking and growth? Awesome. So I think that those questions um, give us a lot to work through. Um, and if we're going to kind of go through them in order, I think just the very notion of what communication is, is beginning to change in education. I think it's changed outside of it um, for a long time. So what do you both feel like are some of the implications for the way that we think about communication changing in this uh, very digital world that we are in right now? So communication is something humans have done since humans have existed and the ways that humans communicate change with the tools that are available to them. And so thinking about how communication is now versus 10 years ago versus 30 versus a thousand years ago is something that is embedded in this question. Mm -hmm. So how do I foster communication among students is something English language arts teachers have been asking always. When we think about digital literacy, we think about the fact that students can communicate outside the walls of the classroom and not just in print-based text. That It's not just going to the library and grabbing a book out of the library or getting a newspaper or reading a magazine, but there are all kinds of digital texts which come in multiple modes that they can create and consume, but also just talk with each other about. So when I think about this word communication, I'm actually thinking about the conversations that surround all of the texts that we have. I don't know, Troy, what do you think? Because communication actually has um, nuanced layers to it. And I really think about communication as conversation. Uh, choosing the intentional tool for the particular moment without being overwhelmed by the tools. Uh, we were talking with some teachers a little earlier this evening as we were uh, doing an online workshop and thinking about someone started rattling off, oh, there's email and then there's instant messaging and then there's text messaging and then there's Snapchat and then there's this. And I think that part of that fostering the communication between students, some of that is the intentional choice of tool and then the tool for that particular purpose. So for instance, at one moment, the best way to give someone feedback on their writing might be just to use the comment feature on Google Docs or Word, at reply them, make sure it pings them and they get a notice in their inbox, or they might even be in a Zoom call and uh, able to see what you've done on screen. Maybe that works for the particular feedback you're giving at that moment, but other types of feedback, you might have to couch it a little bit, add a little bit more detail and context, and, and it just doesn't fit in that tiny little text box. Um, and you want to say something more, either 
potentially something more positive and uh, really say a lot about it or something um, a little more uh, harsh and adding the critique. So when we're talking about that fostering communication, we're, we're talking not only about the just have good interpersonal skills and socio-emotional intelligence to talk with people or write with two people or speak and listen with people, but then also to choose the tool that's going to be best suited at that time amongst the dozens of options that students have. And there's an interesting layer of asynchronous versus synchronous in Mm. in this and, and in just what you said too. So some tools allow for this communication to happen live whether the student is in the classroom with other students or whether they're at home or somewhere else. Um, but then there's also the p- very wonderful possibility of having the asynchronous communication occurring. So what tools can allow what kinds of communication so that students can have real conversations about work that pushes them forward in their learning? And the, the layer that you would kind of open the question with Kristen was just the fact that the context in which students are communicating not just using technological tools, but using the conventions and patterns of like whatever discourses or fandoms or affinity spaces that they're situated in too. So that's been something I've been thinking a lot about as, as well as students aren't just engaging in communication on new technologies. They're engaging in conversation and in communication with people all over the world with all sorts of different interests, um, using all sorts of different modalities. Um, so how can teachers if there isn't this sort of like standard blanket, here's what good communication is based on, you know, academic standard ABC, but they're contending with like the multiplicity of ways that that students communicate in these different communities. What does it look like to both teach effective communication as defined by whatever standards there are, while also honoring and maybe even integrating their own communicative patterns and discourses and technological tools? How does one find balance between those two things? Well, the first step, I think, is honoring their out-of-school discourses. So all of those things that you mentioned aren't typically valued in the school setting. But if we do, we say, hey, this is actually really cool stuff that you're doing and look how you're doing it and think about all the great reading and writing and communicating that you're doing in a fandom or in some kind of affinity space Um, and saying to them, I value that. I'd love for you to share it and think with me about it and think with your classmates about it. And maybe you'll introduce something to one of your classmates that they didn't know existed. And that's the beauty of sharing and conversing and bringing out of school literacies into the classroom. So honoring it first, first step. And to pick up on that, moving beyond that perfunctory schoolish type of (laughs) communication. So Again, just to go back to that idea of like the the forced peer response on the paper. Oh, yep. Great job. Move on to my next peer response. Great job. But to pick up on something that Kristen just said, like it, you are in and amongst other spaces in your lives besides this classroom where you do feel very passionately and you you will offer critique and you will offer substantive feedback, both positive and negative. How can you bring a little bit of that here? And then... Well, you're in the Google Doc, is it best to type that? Is it best to record that as a little voice memo right in the Google Doc using Moat or Kaizenar or something like that? Is it better to actually walk across the room because you're in physical proximity with your classmate and close the lid on your computer and go talk to them? Is it better to send them an email? Like those are the types of things that we can model and puzzle through with students, um, how they can do those things uh, 
I don't want to say the best way because there's probably no best way to communicate in any one of those, but at least to puzzle through the possibilities and, and to think about what that means, both on an interpersonal level, a technical level, uh, all of those different things. And that's going to require also for teachers to rethink the tasks they're asking of students. So if you ask a perfunctory task, they're going to give perfunctory response. If you can create tasks where they are interested and passionate and excited to share, just like they are in their out-of-school spaces, they're going to be interested and passionate and willing to share and give feedback on those tasks too. I think this flows nicely into uh, question two, um, in that how do I encourage accountable collaboration? Because one of the things that I've struggled with is when I give students opportunities to use those um, those literacies and those discourses and those tech tools, um, figuring out what does it look like to honor the choices that they're making and their sort of creativity with some sense of, of feedback or communication or, or moving them towards improvement. Um, it, it can feel strange to position yourself in like as like a, a assessor of students' literacies um, in that regard. Just as a, as a quick anecdote of that, I'm I'm teaching an intercession course right now in between two semesters, and um, it's sort of on Italian cultural studies and pizza. And I had a student um, who made a, a, a TikTok, and for the TikTok, they were they were putting together a pizza while they were discussing the history of pizza as sort of like laid out by um, this author whose whose text you're reading in the course. And because I am on food TikTok, I noticed the conventions and the patterns that they were doing. It was it was sped up. They had a lot of quick um, edits and jump cuts, and it was it very much. Um, sort of resembled what a food talk would look like. And my, my colleague, who is not as much on TikTok, was like, I found all of the extra things very like confusing and disorienting, and it didn't really align with the content. So just thinking from an assessment perspective, we had a really good conversation afterwards about the challenging nature of, you know, because I had a little bit of insider knowledge on food talk, I understood that move that was being made. Um, but, you know, if a teacher wouldn't have that, and there are certainly many literacies and many, I mean, even parts of TikTok that I would not be equipped to assess. So what does it look like for teachers to like, I don't know, be aware of those other um, conventions or patterns and, and give feedback because we're dealing with so many different potential literacies and technological tools that students are, are bringing to the classroom. So how does that look from an assessment perspective, if I were to put a finer point on it? So there's actually a framework um, that was published recently in another NCTE journal called the Interconnected Framework for Multimodal Assessment. And in that uh, assessment framework, it's basically a series of questions that the writer asks and answers themselves. So I, as a teacher, don't have to be familiar with every possible mode that's out there. I don't have to understand TikTok because the writer is going to teach me through part of the assessment process, through part of the reflective process, through part of the, these are the choices I made in creating this product and why, thinking about my audience, um, my purpose, my originality, my mode and meaning. Um, and this is how I think I did add it. What's your feedback as a now reader of this text that I have produced and given you some kind of background for why I made the choices I did. And that takes it back to the accountability. And if we're working in groups there, um, in terms of the accountable collaboration, we're thinking about a, a product that is, again, authentic. It's something that I want to learn to do better I, because I'm in other spaces. And 
together we're going to create this, but through that self-reflective and the piece of the assessment that's not just the product, but kind of outlines the process, you can see the accountability of everyone who was working on that project. I would add that even in the conversation that the two of you were just having, kind of describing food talk and then find, you know, thinking about this framework, maybe that's part of the accountable collaboration is how instead of dismissing it or saying, oh, that's not schooly literacies, what is that? Blah, 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 the teacher opens up those conversations and then is teaching the students to ask those same questions. Because how often have we heard, oh, I saw it on TikTok or I saw it on YouTube? <laughs> yeah. Well, there are dozens of different genres and subgenres of TikTok videos and YouTube videos and Instagram stories. And for that matter, poems and essays and stories and dramas and other kinds of things. So how do we help students pivot into that conversation? So even if I'm not an active collaborator, like we're not co-authoring something, I can be a good thinking partner. I can be mm -hmm. someone who can ask questions of you that get you to think about who you are as a digital author and also will inform me. You'll give me something back that I may not have known before. So I, I think that's uh, another stance that we take with our kids um, is not necessarily you have to be right in there in the thick of it collaborating with one another, um, but you can be a good accountability thinking partner, someone that asks smart questions. That's a kind of collaboration. It's very generative and generous. Yeah, it's not the collaborative learning from the 1990s where you're set into mm. groups of four and everybody has their own role, but instead it's a community of thinkers, learners, readers, writers. And so to create that community in the classroom, you're going to need to establish norms and routines that make everyone accountable to each other and hold each other accountable, whether you are working on an individualized piece or something that's done by everybody in the in the room toward a common goal. Really good point, Troy. And bringing in uh, some specific instances from your article and this idea of, of creating a community, one of the things that really excites me about this work is the notion that it would be like a, a hybrid community where, you know, in your article, you mentioned uh, Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol um, and bringing that as a, a, a text of study alongside these sort of like digital literacy practices. And maybe kids are borrowing moves from different like YouTubers that they're watching or podcasters they're listening to, but they're doing it to engage in dialogue around a sort of a classical text. So do you have any tips for teachers that would, I guess, help them be comfortable bringing this book that maybe they have a, a relationship with themselves and they have a, a way that they sort of in, have envisioned teaching it that bringing in modes of digital literacy might complicate, but ultimately would, in, would enrich because it, that hybrid space opens up new sort of possibilities for both the teachers understanding a relationship with the text and their students um, and the students relationship with the text and their teacher. So what would you say to encourage a teacher to, you know, maybe the first step is teaching a text that you're familiar with, but using digital literacies? Well, the first thing I would say is how wonderful would it be to teach this book that you love and have one of your students give you a perspective you've never thought about? Yes. Right. Like yes. that, that would just be so exciting for anyone who loves a book or who loves literature, or who, who loves reading. So I think that's the first frame. Often as English teachers, we see ourselves as teachers of literature that we have cultivated and loved mm -hmm. and interrogated, and we want our students to do the same thing. And, and let's face it, like 
a very few of them are going to love the same literature that we loved. Right. But if we can engage them a way of saying, I love this, what do you think? Like, how might you interpret it? How might you remix this? How might you bring other voices to interrogate this text? I want to learn from you. So that stamp shift as a teacher would be the first place that I would start. Yeah. Use the piece you love. Now let's invite other perspectives on it. And just thinking about what can we do with the tools? So whether it's an open source, openly available public domain text like Dickens, or it's a contemporary text that they can pull a device out of their pocket and take a a book snap, you know, grab that one paragraph that they can then annotate and put some captions and emojis and things on, or they can record themselves reading it and then they could record a response, whether that's audio or video or both. how is it that we're inviting these conversations? Um, you know, certainly we do want kids to be able to comprehend and understand text. Like they have to have the gist of the story, right? At the same time, if you're only asking questions that uh, certain voice assistants can answer, <laughs> then chances are it was already in Cliff Notes 50 years ago anyway. And it's not like it's anything that's all that new under the sun. So, what are the ways that you're inviting those conversations um, and where are those conversations happening? Um, can they happen quickly? Can they happen slowly? Can they can they um, go back to it and, and return to it? So that's one of the great things about digital annotation is, hey, we're going to look at this chapter now and then uh, we're, we're going to come back to this like a week or two from now. So um, just share your initial thoughts. And then when we come back to this, it's going to be really interesting rather than the piece of paper with the comprehension questions getting crumpled up and thrown away in their locker or their backpack. So I think returning to text over again, not not to the point where it's completely repetitive and redundant, but with intentional touch points. Hey, what did you think a few weeks ago? What do you think now? Can we draw some connections Uh, And again, just even in saying that, like, could we quite literally take a segment of chapter one and a segment of chapter 10, put them side by side on a Google slide and then start annotating around that, like put those two quotes together and let's start thinking about where the connections are there. So at any rate, I, I think there are lots of creative opportunities, even with your standard tech tools, you know, we, we don't just have to use Google Slides for being a slide deck, we could take pictures of text and start annotating it and do all that on Google Slides. So I hope that's helpful as a specific example. Yeah, I think it's it's the transformative use of the technology that intrigues me the most. Um, if I were to have a skeleton in my English teacher closet, it's that I really did not like annotating um, up to a, a very embarrassingly recent uh, um, <laughs> timeline. But um, doing social annotation um, in some PDs that I did um, and with my own students. And I loved it. And I think that the thing that I, uh, I was missing when I was doing annotation myself, I'm a very conversational person, hence the podcast, um, was that sense of dialogue and shared meaning making. And um, social annotation is, um, you know, to the point that you're making a way to engage in analysis and dialogue about it, uh, about a text that isn't really possible without that tool, right? And and it's positioning students to eventually be knowledge producers because they're coming up with an interpretation themselves instead of, you know, spark noting one or asking chat GPT to do it for them or just sort of relying on what they think their teacher wants them to say. Um, So kind of within that same vein of using tech for transformational purposes, 
how do you best equip teachers with the ability to do that? Because I know that I have been very guilty of having a, a, a activity that I do or project do with my students and like the output like looks amazing, but there's this voice in the back of my head that was like, it's a book report. It just looks nice. And like they have good effects. Um, so I've been really trying to move beyond that and thinking about how can students do the type of, of interpretive, analytical, creative work that isn't just the same old thing, you know, wrapped in a, a, a layer of tech, but is truly moving the, the discipline or moving at least the work that they're doing in class in a direction that, you know, previously they couldn't have gone. So I guess it's, so to put that to a, a, a question, how do you move educators beyond the snazziness of educational technology and digital literacy and into the transformative potential? So can I just pull out a phrase that you said as you were talking, because it's so important. You said students become knowledge producers. What a shift that is from, I need to give them this content, which is what I hear mm. so often, right? I need to give them Charles Dickens. They need to learn Charles yes. Dickens. Yes. What if that's not the question? What if the question is, what kind of knowledge are we going to produce today? Then what happens, right? Like what happens to your classroom? What happens to your um, choice of tools, your choice of text and how those things go together? Um, in terms of equipping teachers, like that's a huge hurdle to overcome that my students are going to be the knowledge producers, not me. And I'm going to learn alongside of them because we're going to go on an inquiry together. So that's kind of one hurdle to get over. And the second hurdle in that question is about your comfortability with failing and mm -hmm. using technology that you may or may not be familiar with and how you bring that into the classroom. And I think there, there is a continuum of that. Um, I was always the teacher way back when AIM, hey, the kids are on AIM, let's use those for book clubs, you know, let's give it a try and see what happens. And if that fails, we'll try something else. Um, but not everybody is like that, right? And, and not every context allows for that kind of almost daily experimentation or allowing the, the kids to bring their technology to the school. I mean, so many schools are just shutting down whatever the, the thing is, right? Because it's going to hurt kids or they're going to cheat or whatever it is. Um, so I know Troy probably has ideas about this that, that you want to share, but I just wanted to kind of name two hurdles that I think we do need to address whenever we're working with teachers or whenever we're asking teachers to take this work on. And the first is that, what if the question is, how do my students become the knowledge producers? And the second is, how do we use tools or how does that change our use of tools and the text that we're choosing? Yeah, I appreciate those questions. Uh, when you first asked that, Trevor, I was thinking of a phrase that my, one of my pre-service English education methods instructors, uh, Diane Holt Reynolds, would often say, um, death by diorama or death by collage. <laughs> and I, because she would allude to that, like, how many collages did you make as you, yeah. you know, through your K-12 schooling and dioramas? And did you learn anything from that? And so, yeah, we could substitute death by infographic, death by, you know, uh, interactive uh, timeline, death by podcast, hopefully not this one, but um, <laughs> just thinking that, you know, yeah, we have some kids suddenly, oh, okay, we're going to all learn how to use Audacity. We're going to add a sound effect and a little bit of music, and it's going to be awesome. And like you just said, it's the book report, but it's just dressed up. So 
what is it that they're able to do? Who is it that they are able to talk with? What is it that they are able to discover through that talk and going back and listening to that talk and then splicing that talk and re-editing and remixing that talk that they would not necessarily have learned how to do by just writing about that text? Having said that, and I, I say this often in my workshops and webinars, so you two have probably heard this and I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but I will always say for my children and everyone's children, I want them to still know how to put words into sentences, sentences into paragraphs and paragraphs into essays, stories, poems, whatever it is they're trying to write. We can't take that away. It's a both and not the either or. So we want them to be able to move beyond the diorama and do something meaningful with multimodality. We also wanna make sure that they can construct good, thoughtful, organized sentences, paragraphs and longer compositions. And one of the ways that I've, I've been playing with that too is, is figuring out, you know, since time is finite and it feels like each year, uh, it keeps getting shorter and shorter. But the idea of, of remix, right? Where if a student writes an essay using the raw materials and research that they did from that to make a mini documentary or to make a, a TikTok or to do a TED talk or something. Um, so it doesn't have to be this like brand new thing. Like, oh, well, I taught this novel and we did an essay. So now I need to teach another novel for them to do the creative project, right? It's like, no, they could, they could have, you could have an informational unit that has a position paper at the end. But then it's thinking about, well, what new audience um, would you want to market this to using a different mode, using different tools? Um, and it's having that sort of like rhetorical knowledge and awareness of audience, as well as an understanding um, of that tool and, and sort of Moving that to uh, another question, one of the things that I've also been trying to work through, and this is um, uh, the activity we just did with the now comment, this is where I put my uh, little annotation, was how can we acknowledge the fact that students are tech savvy while also acknowledging or grappling with the fact that that doesn't necessarily mean they have a deep like semiotic knowledge of how to convey meaning in different modes. Right. Like I, I saw an, a web developer the other day talking about how TikTok is created to only be used with your thumb. You can do everything you need on TikTok with your thumb. Um, and it like these the, the user interfaces and the creation process on these apps are so sort of uh, fluid and intuitive um, that a student's ability to use it and navigate it might not necessarily mean that they know how to think deeply about the way that they're using uh, the affordances of whatever mode that they're composing in. So how can we trust students to, to have the voice and choice and creativity that we want them to have while also helping them and not just assuming that we can say, go make, uh, you know, go do a video essay. And then because they're a Gen Z kid who has a TikTok, they can do it in like a day or two without any instruction or assistance or um, collaboration. A wonderful question. And the thing you're making me think of with the TikTok immediately, and this is me, not having TikTok on my own phone, but looking over the shoulders of my teenagers and getting the occasional link to a TikTok that I actually watch in a web browser that then tells me, oh, it's better on your phone. Here, download the app. Um, I have to wonder how many of those really good TikToks are created entirely in TikTok and how many of them might be created with the help of some other tools? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't live in the TikTok world, so maybe you can even shed some light on that for me. But what I would think is that in order to be a pretty effective video producer, even if let's say you, you do use TikTok in and of itself for your, your video creation, 
you've probably made some videos in some other spaces and with some other tools and thought a lot about, you know, this is my limited knowledge, right? The rule of thirds and panning and zooming and close-ups and long shots and establishing shots. And like you have a repertoire of skills that you're able to translate to your thumb as you're building a TikTok video that's going to go viral. So yeah, just to say like, oh, they've made it very intuitive. They've made it very intuitive to consume and to like and emote on, right? But have they made it very intuitive to create? I honestly don't know the answer to that question, but I'd also be pretty, I have a strong suspicion that people that are making the very best TikToks have probably made other videos in other spaces with other tools. That's my suspicion. I have a couple of teenagers in my house. So one of my jobs is Uber driving teenagers to all <laughs> kinds of activities. And I Five love, stars, I, hope. <laughs> I love being that Uber driver when there's more than just my children in the car, because then I get to hear all kinds of conversations. One of the conversations that happened recently, and I hear this kind of thing all the time. Well, I don't understand why this TikTok video got all of these views and this one only got this many views. I just like, I didn't do anything differently. And so to me, when I'm listening to that, I'm like, oh my gosh, what an opportunity to, to talk about the composition process, to talk about the algorithms, right? Which is also part of digital literacy and understanding how things get pushed out and how composing things in a certain way actually increases their chances of getting them pushed out to more people. Like all of these underlying software and algorithm um, skills that they, they could basically help themselves as writers. Um, but just that that simple why this and not this offers an opportunity for conversation about the composition in a space that I don't participate in. I don't know much about. I don't I don't view. I, I probably haven't viewed anything. I don't even look over the shoulders of kids who are doing this. I just listen to them talk in the backseat of my car. Um, but I can have that conversation with them. Oh, well, Let's look, you know, composite. I know the rule of thirds, right? I know color, you know, I know those things as a more expert digital writer. And I could have those conversations in the classroom with my students as well. Yeah. And this whole conversation about algorithms, you're just making me think, right? Has SEO become the new five paragraph essay? So we're trying to get students to be bloggers and post across multiple forms of social media but what are we really asking them to do are we asking them to take all the affordances of being able to embed media hopefully some of their own media as well as media that they've remixed or repurposed or are making commentary upon have we helped give them a really thoughtful conversation about hyperlinks and when and why and how and how many hyperlinks would be appropriate in a text or are we just kind of mimicking the social media style and yep we got this thing done and like you said a moment ago i have a book report and it's in a different form i made a blog post instead of a book report um that's that's an interesting question too like what are what are the things where we are being creative with these digital tools and then in what ways might they actually be imposing new limitations on the types of writing we would want our students to do yeah, and if I could take this back to your question, Trevor, you said about kids being tech savvy, but not necessarily having this knowledge. I like to separate tech savvy from tech comfy, because I think kids are tech comfy. Um, and the savvy is what we can offer them 
as teachers, right? We can, we can help them become more savvy. And that actually leads us, I think, to the fourth question that we pose in that article about how students revisit, revise, reflect on their thinking, learning, and growth. Hey, you might know how to use your thumb to do all these things on TikTok, but are you actually thinking about the composition of that video? Okay, next time you post a video, maybe that'll be in your head. So this week, I'm going to ask you the same question. Did you think about it? And if we could somehow help the world, which begins with our students, right, to understand that every time they are putting something out there, they are creating and composing. And if you don't do that mindfully, then you aren't necessarily putting good stuff out into the world. Every time you consume something on TikTok or whatever digital space you're in, you're reading it, right? You're reading the world. And if you just scroll and look at things at a base level, then you're not doing that critically and you're not thinking about what you're taking in. So I think that reflective piece and thinking about am I, what I am doing is reading and writing at base level. Yeah because they don't see it that way. Yeah, and, and it's it's a, it's such a double-edged sword. And I love how you bring up the fact that they are, if you really boil it down to its, you know, bare ingredients are the same. And I would joke with my students every year that, you know, if they are, uh, you know, sending an Instagram DM to someone that they want to like ask to coffee, I'm like, that's a composition opportunity that you're engaging in. Your emoji choice is based off of your audience. It's based on your purpose. Um, you know, you can tell that I don't have insider knowledge as a millennial because I still use the cry emoji and apparently like that's not cool anymore. So like that's a, a poor composition choice that I made when I was engaging, you know, in a, in a texting conversation. Um, and it's, it's, I think that on, so on the one hand, it's amazing that kids have when you give them opportunities to sort of dig into um, what they're doing from a metacognitive perspective, they have this knowledge of, of compositional practices and like the, these modal affordances. But on the other hand, those creative tools are bound up in, as you point out, I mean, I, I would be remiss to not mention that as a platform, TikTok, um, their, their policies and their implementation of certain things and their use of the algorithm is, is problematic to say like the least. So how do we help students explore the potential and the affordances of these tools and platforms while also acknowledging, you know, the fact that they aren't necessarily always being used or being operated um, by people with their best interests in mind and that the things that they create and produce are up for public consumption, you know, despite the fact they're 14 and 15 and, you know, they, their prefrontal cortex hasn't fully evolved. So what is that piece? I don't want to say the darker side of digital literacy, but just the fact that these creative tools, um, uh, they're not just on your uh, independent offline device anymore. They are, they are bound up in these sort of like digital networks and, and algorithm um, driven platforms. So how, how do we navigate that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not easy. That's it's, a big question to throw at you. Well, yeah. no, I mean, it's important. It's one I've been thinking about um, in particular. So my kids were born, I have twins and they were born the same year as the iPhone. So I've basically mm. been growing up technology with kids who are, you know, alongside of all of this technology at their most formative years all the time. And a couple of years ago, I actually um, asked this question, like, how do, how do we do this? How do we teach kids about algorithms? And I want everyone to have agency in this process. I don't want the technology to rule us, right? So if there are things about the technology that are going to change my behavior, I should be aware of that. And I should be mindful about it 
so that I have a little bit of choice in that, or I can choose to engage or not to engage, or I can change my behavior to get the things that I am purposefully looking for. So I actually um, talked with my daughter about these things. And I was doing kind of a, how could I possibly teach a 12 year old about algorithms? And it was surprisingly easy for her to understand. And she still talks about it today. And even my son will be like, well, that's what the algorithm gave me. That's not what I was looking for. That's not, I didn't read those things. I didn't go down that YouTube rabbit hole because I know it was just what the algorithm was giving me. So I do think there are possibilities if we infuse this in our conversations with students, and if we intentionally teach them about these things, that we can make progress on this so that they are not slaves to the technology, but actually have agency over the technology. That being said, I know that a lot of teachers will see this as an add-on, right? It's something else we have to teach them. I, I would make the argument that we need to teach multiple modes. We need to teach what digital texts are, and this is part of what a digital text is. So just like we might teach an informational text that has graphs in it, and don't just skip over the graph, right? Like we have to learn to read that graph. That's part of what an informational text is. This is part of what a digital text is, especially in social media spaces. So it's it's part of the conversation of teaching and using these texts in our classrooms. To build on that and to layer in a, a thought from Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology, he has a quote that goes something like, you know, we are fighting against devices that are racing to the bottom of our brainstem, right? All the notifications, all the jackpot style, ooh, click here, do more, get this next notification, log back in, play more games, watch more videos. I would couple that idea with what Kristen was just saying to say that as teachers, not only is it a good idea to teach your students about things like ad blockers and reader view and, um, you know, trying to turning things into PDFs that you could take into OneNote or into uh, Acrobat and annotate, um, because those are good reading skills, but they're also good digital literacy skills and kind of pushing back against that algorithm, pardon me, algorithmic, you know, type of stuff that the devices are doing to us rather than us using the devices for our own purposes. So I think it, again, I know I said this earlier and I don't mean to repeat myself too much, but it's the both and. Yes, this is good for you because it's a literacy skill and, and we're going to make this text a little clearer and more coherent and take the ads off of it. And that's also some good digital literacy hygiene, some things that you need to know about what your phone is tracking and how your browser is tracking you. And maybe sometimes you want to switch browsers or clear your cookies or use an incognito window or things like that. So um, I do think that, um, again, I'm not going to forego my entire English language arts curriculum and suddenly turn it only into a class about digital and media literacy. But it's just those little tips and tricks and tidbits and things that you could have along the way. Yeah, I really appreciate both of your um, more positive framings of, of thinking about how students engage with that. And uh, Douglas Rushkoff, who's a media theorist and I guess like public intellectual whose work I really love, was recently talking about the, the fact that sometimes we completely outsource our agency as humans. And we've almost put too much power in the hands of Silicon Valley sort of like folks and mythology around like, you know, like we are all just automatons who are hooked to our devices. And it's like we have we're people like obviously, you know, there, there are mechanisms that are being pulled and levers that are being operated that will, will make us, you know, uh, reach for our phone. But like 
with an understanding, with an awareness, with a sort of criticality with how we engage with those devices, um, they don't take ownership over us. Like we can use them um, if we are conscious of what we are doing. And, and if we are also aware of the fact that they might try be trying to use us um, at the same time. So I, I appreciate that more positive um, framings. I, I do feel like uh, it can be very doom and gloom when you get to that side of the conversation. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that, you know, these are tools that, that we have some level of control and ownership of. So if I could kind of just pull in one more question, um, and I think that maybe this would align well, um, you know, we, uh, this podcast is going to be coming out relatively in the timeline that chat GPT uh, Fuhrer has sort of like reached its, its uh, zenith. So if I'm looking at this question of how do I encourage accountable collaboration, um, what happens when the things that we're collaborating with and use things very purposefully aren't people, but they're artificial intelligence. So if we're thinking about um, the, the role of digital literacy, um, there's this sort of new vista that has opened up. And I consider myself a pretty tech savvy person. And I was completely shocked by the speed at which this thing sort of like entered into my uh, I, orbit and how all the things that it could do. So I was like, I can't create. And then I asked it to reframe an email that a colleague wrote in like um, King James uh, style speech. And it was like, and lo, the children shall be on time. And I was like, oh, wow, it has jokes too. So uh, I, what do you all think about this idea of, of accountable collaboration and accountability in general um, with our students um, without entering into some sort of like Foucaultian panopticon surveillance where we're trying to out tech them? I had a great conversation with my son at dinner tonight about this exact thing. And, you know, started with don't use chat GPT to, to do your essays. Like <laughs> yeah. that's where I started. Right. He's like, what do you mean? He hadn't even heard of it, which I, I'm not sure how that happened, but um, the conversation unfolded with this 15 year old student about how it is a collaboration. Right. But if we're going to look at it, you don't just take what the robot does. That's cheating, right? You have yeah. to add yourself to it. And that's so interesting. Like we have these new collaborators we never had before. I mean, Troy, you're a great collaborator, but I do have a robot option now, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just, you know, I think things are changing. And if we look at this as, and I, you framed it this way, right? Like we're collaborating with bots. Yes, we are. So what does that mean? Let's have an open and honest conversation about it. This is the approach I take as a parent, right? Like mm. let's have an open and honest conversation about it. And it's the approach I think we need to take with students of all levels, to be honest with you right now, about yeah. what it means to cheat versus what's the gray area where it can then move into, this is actually just a new kind of collaboration. I don't think we have all the answers to that yet. Um, but I think those are conversations that we need to just have out in the open and not hide it from from younger writers. Yeah, oh, so much to say about this. I'll try to be brief. Um, <laughs> yeah. So first of all, I think to Kristen's last point, hopefully, I, I mean, cool. You want to go write with Chat GPT? I, I'm kind of curious too. I'm, I'm Chat GPT curious. But I would also say, like, when we're writing together like this is one of the reasons i value our collaboration so much is kristen will be talking i'll be typing she'll stop talking i'll finish the sentence then i'll start talking she'll start typing like those deep levels of collaboration are really meaningful um you know intellectually and emotionally you get it, it's a fulfilling experience to have that not that chat gpt is going to ever do quite that for me but at the same time that could be helpful me i'm stuck i need some help give me some place to start. 
The other thing, and this is where I'm starting to pivot the conversation as I hear all these, the sky is falling, we're doomed, we need yeah. algorithmic detection. I'm like, well, tell me how that whole thing with turn it in is gone. Are <laughs> people still plagiarizing? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what about yeah. spell checkers? Oh, yeah, now if we're not spell checking, we're considered idiots because we should just have it turned on automatically. We should never have a spelling error. Oh, and talk to the math teachers about calculators too. Mm-hmm. So we're not gonna we're not gonna lose. It's not a win or lose. It just is. It's here, right? There's no battle to be had. The it, Chat GPT and these other tools are here. So then I turn to this idea of the best way to describe it is that they say I say um, kind of Graf and Birkenstein. That is what writing is. Academic writing. You are standing on the shoulders of giants and building on the ideas of others and dipping your or in the water and coming up to the cocktail room table from Bruffy, like all the different analogies that we use. Cool. Chat GPT is going to give me my bare bones, basic. I can put my or in the water around the topic of X. I need to write this essay. I don't know where to start. Oh my gosh, just help me start. Now I need to add details and examples and citations and transitions and counter arguments and all that kind of stuff. So it is. it can be a collaborator if we teach kids how to use it that way and we teach them to do it responsibly and productively. And I don't think that relies on them like color coding everything that ChatGPT had originally and then I'm going to add my own ones in a different color font. And that like, then that's just, it, it just makes the writing process so reductive. I mean, the one thing I do think is that, okay, maybe you could say in a Google Doc, Take what Chat, Chat, Chat GPT gave you, save that version, Chat GPT's input, and then start tracking changes. And then the kid writes over top of it and revises. And then you can go back and you can say, now save this version, now accept all changes. And you've got those snapshots of that document and what that writer did. And that opens up another generative conversation. So again, we can panic about it. I don't think it's worth panicking. I think it's worth being productive and uh, hopefully a little more progressive with our pedagogy. And Troy, that again, gives them the opportunity to revisit their writing and do that comparison themselves. So what did I add to this that is mine? What Mm. did I build on? And name that. And if I'm the teacher, I'm actually more interested in that to assess the writer. Like if they can go back and say, here's what it was, and then here's what I've done to it, then I am about the final product in general. Because if they can articulate and identify how they have contributed or how they've changed, then they get it. Yeah, just a quick footnote I'd say on that. Like I was talking to another colleague, we're planning a workshop on AI and writing, and we were talking about how it's actually the revising and editing that are the higher level thinking skills than the initial drafting of ideas. And so isn't that where we want to get students thinking on those higher level critical thinking skills? So I agree. Yeah, and, and this sort of goes back to one of our earlier points about positioning students as knowledge producers. When they see what they're doing, not as proof that they read the thing and understand the thing, but as an opportunity to take their own interpretation and put it out into the world. That's not to say that they're not going to be enticed by the potential fruits of AI labor, but that is to say that they will have more of an impetus to be like, this is what I have to say. And maybe you collaborate with, you know, a chat GPT to figure that out. But the emphasis is on what knowledge are you producing? Because if we are going to, you know, assume that, um, 
and I think that you, this was mentioned earlier, giving a sort of perfunctory or a response sort of based prompt is going to lead to anything but students leveraging those tools. Like, unfortunately, I think that, you know, we'd be, be kidding ourselves. But when it's been my experience that when students are given opportunities to feel like what they do matters, and what they say matters, and um, to be producers of knowledge and to use those opportunities to make sense of themselves and their world and the text that they're reading and the, the world that they're sort of moving through. Um, there's less of an incentive to ask a robot what it thinks because it's sort of about you and, and your own meaning making process. Um, and just to sort of bring things to a close here, one of the things I love about having conversations with people who are um, tech savvy, as you said, um, uh, Kristen, um, but also have a sort of like disciplinary orientation is for me, this conversation felt more like we are reconceptualizing and renegotiating what communication is, what um, collaboration is, what ownership or remix um, is, um, because there, there are times where I'm in ed tech spaces and it feels like um, it's about the it's about the tool or it's about the tech or it's like I am a this teacher in terms of what apps or, or things that I use or I'm a that teacher. Um, and I feel like when that takes control, that those deeper questions that um, you have uh, beautifully sort of explored in this podcast, get lost and forgotten. Um, and then I think when that happens, kids, even the technology, just a pure engagement piece sort of falls away because they don't really have that. They aren't doing anything different with it. It's the same old patterns of school. So I just want to say thank you both so much for getting my brain sort of turning about this. Um, if folks want to find more about your work, uh, where would they go? And just generally, where can they um, support and check out the scholarship that you all are engaging in? Thank you, Trevor, for having us on the uh, podcast. Uh, I am Hickstro pretty much everywhere. Uh, Hickstro.org, Hickstro on Twitter, Hickstro at gmail.com. I um, am happy to have, uh, you know, conversations with people uh, asynchronously or even synchronously. Sometimes if someone just wants to hop on Zoom for a quick minute and say, hey, I'm puzzling through this thing on my lesson. I, I wonder, I need some feedback. I need a little boost. Uh, I really, uh, it, it fills my teacher heart to talk with teachers and help them puzzle through some of this stuff. So please reach out. Yeah, the same, except I'm teach KHT pretty much everywhere. Um, and the same, I I love to connect and talk with teachers who are interested in moving moving forward and, and thinking about a both-and world and embracing mm. the technologies that exist and that are, I mean, softwares go away. We know what happened to Wikispaces, right? But technologies yeah. writ large, they don't necessarily go away. They change how we interact with each other. So the way that you said that we are changing how we communicate, we're changing how we collaborate yeah, not only are we changing, it already has changed in the real world. So oh, we wow. want to prepare our students for that. Awesome. Thank you both so much. I really appreciated it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. 